Welcome to the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. My name is Harold Nickel. Some employers are getting creative in order to hold on to key employees. As the job market improves, competition for the best talent ramps up. Top programmers and code writers are offered lavish salaries, cars, housing allowances, club memberships, daycare, and other services that were once only found at resorts and five-star hotels. It sounds great at first, but there's always the law of unintended consequences. And here to keep us from inadvertently swerving into an unforced error is the guardian herself, Ren Melberg. And Ren, first of all, for those of us, including me, who, who don't know, what is a knowledge worker? That is an important distinction. Uh, especially for this conversation because the science that we'll be discussing says that how compensation and rewards and recognition work for knowledge workers is very different than industrial or manufacturing workers. Okay. And so knowledge workers are distinguished because they're not hired for rote work, Mm -hmm. doing the same thing in the same way every day. Right. They're hired for thought work. So you you mentioned in the intro, programmers. Uh-huh. Great example. QA people, marketing, sales, um, you know, project managers, all leadership positions are knowledge workers. Uh-huh. Um, even some areas that we don't think of as traditionally knowledge workers, like professional football players, are knowledge workers. Their unique knowledge of their um, physical capabilities plus their heightened knowledge of the sport makes Mm -hmm. them knowledge workers. I wouldn't have thought that. I wouldn't have thought that at all. (laughs) Firefighters, police officers are knowledge workers. Hmm. Um, Again, because they have a specialized knowledge and experience Mm -hmm. that they bring to bear, they're hired for their brains way more than their physical abilities. And NFL players, by the way, that's one of the things the scouts um, look for, is it just a lot of people have physical ability, but what distinguishes an NFL player is their knowledge of the game. We hear that over and over and over again, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that is how we know they're a knowledge worker. Okay. Um, where industrial workers, again, are they're really hired for what their hands or their feet can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they it's... often don't require specialized knowledge. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they do, but more often than not, than not they don't. Um, and their job is the same pretty much all day long, every every day. Where knowledge workers, they don't live in the same day twice, right? Right, that's um, exactly right. And what we found is performance is very different. How we measure performance, how we assess them performance, how we incentivize performance is very different between these two groups of workers. Everything is different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the distinction, you know, if I'm stamping out belt buckles or drilling holes in metal, that's not a knowledge worker versus like what you had described, um, the football player, the police officer, the firefighter, the code writer. So, okay. Right. So, friends, and that is in the case of like that belt buckle is the same belt belt buckle every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that was what I had in mind. Yeah, right. <laughs> Where handcrafted artisans are definitely knowledge workers. Yes, absolutely right. right? 
Okay. So I know that like we've talked before and you've mentioned to me that this high bidder approach to recruiting and retaining the best talent, that that's not always the best way to go. Can you elaborate on that for us? Sure. And I refer people to the Daniel Pink's book, Drive Before. And the reason I do uh, is he is a good writer. Mm-hmm. That's important. But yeah. what he has done is he's synthesized for us about 70 years worth of um, your research in, in science and study on mm-hmm. the subject matter. So you and I don't have to go out and read um, all this information by sociologists, anthropologists, economists, and philosophers, believe it or not. Um, we can just read Daniel Pink and make our lives a lot easier. Right, right. And what we've learned is that, uh, and it's starting with economists just after World War II, is that when it comes to knowledge workers, more money as like uh, an incentive, so bonuses, mm-hmm actually degrades performance. That's, Let that sink in. Yeah. We're taught every day in America that we get the best out of people by throwing money at them as an incentive. Mm-hmm. Right? Competition, we hear competition will always get us our best, meaning marketplace competition, sorry. Mm-hmm. Right. We'll always get the best um, performance. Well, economists have been telling us since late 1940s, early 1950s, that's not true when it comes to knowledge workers. It does work for industrial workers. Okay. So we can, when we have rote work, we're doing the same thing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. We can give people, a, you know, the incentive. Well, if you can do this 10% faster, you're going to get this bonus. And most of the time, people will achieve that bonus. And even if they don't achieve that bonus, they will have improved performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The exact That's... opposite happens with knowledge workers. So you tell knowledge workers, we're going to, we want you to improve your performance by 10%. Here's the big bonus. We're going to hang it out there. Mm-hmm. And usually what happens is everyone's performance degrades. Hmm. It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Yes. If we think of human beings as just pure reactionary mice in a maze. Okay. But the problem with knowledge workers is they're being paid for their brain power. Mm -hmm. So everything that happens in that beautiful frontal cortex. Yes. Part of the brain that makes human beings very unique and special. Um, what that brain, part of the brain also responds to is a very different incentive. Okay. So that brain is the part of the brain that always wants to know why. We've talked about that a lot, especially for agile things, right? Mm-hmm. Right. You have to answer the question, why? Why are we doing this? Daniel Pink talks about that in terms of purpose. Mm-hmm. Why do we have company mission statements? Because the frontal cortex loves that. It wants mm. that. It craves it. It needs to know why. What's my purpose? The other thing that it wants is some autonomy. That doesn't mean it wants to sit in a corner by itself. Actually, knowledge workers hate working. 
by themselves. And they actually perform worse when they're in an individualistic scenario. And I think of one client I had where none of the business analysts were allowed to talk to each other, basically. They all had separate projects, and they were all kind of pitted against each other. Mm -hmm. And you saw really stellar BAs come in, and, and suddenly they're underperforming. Well, everybody underperformed in that environment. Hmm. Um, but what they want is autonomy is more about control over how they do their job, not about individualism. It's you're going to say, this is what I need you to do and why I need you to do it, and I'm going to trust you to figure out the how. Okay. That That's what sense. we're talking about. So I'm not going to micromanage you. I'm not going to give you checklists, right? If you're a knowledge mm-hmm. worker, the worst thing you could ever do is give checklists to a knowledge worker. We've all been there, right? And I heard, oh, yeah. and I can almost hear people's eyes rolling. It's a great way to degrade performance of knowledge workers is to give them like, you know, an actual checklist or something like a checklist that you're basically telling them exactly how to do their job, right? Yeah. They sit there and go, well, if you know how to do my job, why don't you do it and leave me alone and I'll go do something else. Yeah. So that's yeah. what we mean by autonomy. Um, and then the really big one is mastery. Okay. Being in an environment where you can constantly learn, and you have an opportunity to continuously improve, and you know you can get really, really good at something. Mm -hmm. Human beings inherently, whether they're industrial workers or knowledge workers, love being really good at something. Yes. And what knowledge workers are looking for is an opportunity to achieve mastery in their profession because knowledge workers look at don't look at jobs or careers Uh and this is Rin saying this not Daniel Pink but they're looking at their profession and they take their profession and being a professional and achieving mastery in a profession very seriously yes absolutely it kind so of that's a very me- long way of talking about knowledge workers and how we <laughs> well, distinguish them. And why traditional approaches is it to recruiting and retaining isn't going to work? Because traditionally, you just throw money at someone yep. or incentives or stuff, and they're going to go, yeah, but why should I work for you? Yes. Can I have autonomy, or are you going to tell me how to do my job? And when they see you, when they see an employer giving them things like cars and daycare and that kind of stuff, they're kind of go, wait a minute, are you going to not just tell me how to do my job? Are you going to tell me how to live my life? Mm-hmm. You're starting to scare me a little bit. Yeah. Um, and where's the mastery? Where, where do I get to really work with other smart people and we can get really, really good at this thing? Those are excellent questions. Yeah. It, it, it also too makes me kind of wonder about the, the personalities of the people who, who accept these lavish offers. And I wondered if there was data or some reason to believe that this highly recruited, highly compensated talent are they also egomaniacal, high maintenance prima donnas? 
Um, I think we've all seen that. There, I think there are a lot of people who chuckled with me when you said that because we've seen it. (laughs) Yep. Right? And what do we know about those people, too? As soon as the job gets hard, what do they do? They leave. Yeah, they bail. They go to the next highest bidder Mm -hmm. every time. So when you're a knowledge worker, do you want to invest in that relationship with that person? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, to solve difficult challenges and to learn from each other, of course not. Of course not. And, and we, and most of us know who they are. I mean, they walk in the door and you're like, oh, seriously? <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> you are not here for the same reasons as the rest of us. And we're right. probably not going to get a lot out of you before you're gone. And I remember one instance in particular, um, my client had hired someone uh, just as they were starting to work with me. And they later said to me, we should have had you interview him. Yeah. And they did have me interview candidates after that. Um, and he walked in and I was like, oh, well, this, he's going to be gone in like six months. Hmm. Um, and I think he lasted like seven or eight. But, yeah, it was just like, yeah, you're not committed to this company. Right. If all you're doing is chasing money. And you're certainly not committed to your profession if all you're doing is is chasing money. If money is your motivator, you really belong in an industry uh, worker position, not a knowledge worker. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, to be fair, that question was pretty loaded. So <laughs> um, let me uh, let me regroup and and ask the same thing, but differently, is there a value proposition? And I think you've hinted at it um, for employees that employers need to be aware of. Right. So what we didn't talk about is is an important and critical caveat to Daniel Pink's work is to be able to motivate your knowledge workers with purpose, autonomy, and mastery. You first have to be... Sorry? No, I was just trying to learn that purpose, autonomy, mastery. In mastery, um, yeah, Pam. Yeah, okay. Um, to to first get there, your knowledge workers have to believe that they are fa- fairly inadequately compensated. Okay. So if, in a, you know, again, thinking of a particular marketplace, oh, I'm sorry, but um, the average programmer, experienced agile programmer, makes about one twenty five a year. And there's a company in this town that typically only pays about ninety to a hundred. Mm-hmm. Everybody immediately goes, Well they're not attracting the best talent. Of course not. Right. If you're not paying market and that's just one twenty five is just considered market. That's not even right. above market, right? That's just market. If you're not paying market, then you clearly don't value this position. Right. And the people are in it. The other thing that it says to knowledge workers is that you're not willing to invest in them. Yep. So I'm are clear. you going to provide opportunities for mastery? No. 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 Do you understand that you have a knowledge worker here and you need to give them autonomy? Maybe, maybe not. Is your motivation purpose? No. 
Your motivation yeah. is probably purely bottom line. It's not even economic. It's just managing expenses. Because uh-huh. people know, especially when we talk about the knowledge industries, like why do we pay more money for rock star marketing people? Because we're going to get more value from them. We're going to get a higher return on investment from that person. That's why we pay them more. Heck yeah. So if you're a company and there's one another one I'm thinking of that almost brags about the fact that they pay below market. What you're saying is that you don't value these people and you're not making an investment decision. Right. You're making a cost. Decision, and knowledge workers are usually going to be kind of put off by that. And rightfully so. And, you know, to that point, just to sort of take that a little bit further, I think just about everybody knows that the best way to get a really good raise is to, is to change employers. Mm-hmm. How is it, though, that business and HR professionals, how have they not recognized that and made changes? It's really, it is mind-boggling, isn't it? Mm-hmm. For as long as that we've been talking about this, because I remember when I was a little kid, my grandfather talking about this as a problem. And then it was an increasing problem in the technology industry um, back then in, in the 80s. And mm-hmm. um, it's still a problem. It's become more of a problem because if more and more companies, <clears throat> excuse me, now only giving like 2 or 3% raises and then wondering mm-hmm. why they can't retain anybody. Well, the raise isn't keeping up with the cost of living increases. That's right. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're, the longer they stay with you, and the real cost is money, they're making less. It's all you're giving right. them is a 3% raise. And this is what's going on is some leaders, and especially HR leaders, are not making economic decisions. Mm-hmm. They're making cost decisions. Right. So they're purely looking at the cost and not looking at the total economics. Right. That's so true. It's um it's a it's a mind-boggling thing. But to follow up, um the corollary, what's it cost the company to replace the the knowledge worker who leaves for that that big raise at a different or even competing oh. company? So I I love this math and I hate this math. Okay. <laughs> so, um, what we found, um, mostly from economists, have have taught us scientifically that the raise that's needed, on average, to retain um, workers year over year is about fifteen percent. Okay. So, especially knowledge workers, because knowledge worker salaries go up even in a bad economy; they go up every year. Okay. Um, so you not only have to keep up with the cost of living that increases every year, but you're having to keep up the marketplace. And on average, it's about 15%. You should look at your particular market and your particular industry because it could be a little higher, it could be a little lower. Okay. But we usually use 15% as a good mark. Um, so you compare that to what it costs to replace a knowledge worker. And usually what it costs is somewhere between... 50 to 150 percent of that knowledge worker's fully loaded compensation. Whoa! So that's, that's their lot. salary, bonus, 
insurances, all that stuff. So mm-hmm. that's what we mean by fully loaded comp, everything. Yep. And so when you think, we, we just say a knowledge worker, they make $100,000 a year. Mm-hmm. You could be, you often are going to be paying between fifty to $150,000 to replace that one person. Whereas you could have pocketed that difference if um, you had just given them a decent raise for for, for three years is the same as fifty percent. Yeah, forty five percent, right? And, and and you make your since you're a percent on top of a percent on top of a percent, and basically mm-hmm. it winds up to being pretty close. You could keep that person for three years. Unbelievable for the lowest cost that it would cost. Uh, cost to replace them. And when we look at our major knowledge worker population centers in the United States, Mm -hmm. so New York, D.C., Atlanta, I'm just going to name a few, Minneapolis, um, Dallas, Fort Worth, um, Houston, Austin, L.A., San Francisco, Seattle. Those Mm -hmm. are kind of the big techie ones, right? Right. you're, there's no way you're going to be able to afford to replace a hundred thousand dollar a year knowledge worker for only fifty grand. Wow! You're looking at a hundred thousand to hundred twenty-five thousand. I know companies that are spending about a hundred thousand to hundred twenty-five thousand trying to find scrum masters. Wow! Um, because the market is so competitive. Mm-hmm. For particular knowledge workers, yeah. So that for, it would be less expensive for the companies to aggressively retain the good people they have and to develop their own people mm-hmm. into the roles they need, than to go out into the marketplace and find them. But most organizations are not set up to do either one of those things. Right. Right. Because you know they're you know they get an edict from the board. Well, you can only give people three percent raise, mm-hmm. or you know we don't have time. And the audience is going to freak when I say this because you've heard it all the time. We don't have time to develop people. No. Well, if you're being realistic and you're taking an economic view, you can't afford not to develop your people. Isn't that the truth? Because you can't afford to hire them in. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if you're not developing your people, you're not going to be able to keep your people. I think that's just so true. Um, so let's shift gears a little bit um, and talk about the the knowledge worker in a little bit more detail. Will they, the knowledge worker, will they work harder and produce more if they know not only how productive they are compared to their colleagues, but what those same colleagues are getting paid. Oh, I'm glad you brought up the pay thing. So that's another thing that we've learned, and Daniel Pink has done a good synthesis of this as well. Um, He doesn't go into a great deal of depth, but, you know, neither will I. But basically what we found out, and this is why um, more and more companies are just publishing salaries, is that... It is more damaging to um, productivity in an environment of knowledge workers for them to actually have significant differences in pay or Mm -hmm. to even perceive 
that they have significant differences in pay. So they've done studies where they've found that even men who believe that the women are underpaid compared to them doing the same job, every mm-hmm. the men in particular become less productive. Huh. So it's pay equity in knowledge workers is 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 an economic consideration. And so what I've 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 had clients and and one of my past employers were really good at this was very aggressive at making sure that we had pay equity. Mm-hmm. Because people always find out. Yep. They may not know the exact numbers, but they'll know directionally who's underpaid and who's overpaid and who's just right. You know, Mm -hmm. our three little bears of (laughs) compensation. That's right. Um, And if there is a perception, and it only has to be perception, that someone is underpaid Mm -hmm. who shouldn't be, Mm -hmm. that actually degrades the performance of everyone. Wow. Um, and it, there's some really great studies out there, um, and, and we've seen it over and over again. And this is the big, this is one of the other, those big differences I mentioned before, um, between knowledge workers and industrial workers. Knowledge workers do not like it. And they don't respond well, and it's usually not even conscious, just so you know, when there is some inequity. In the workplace, we see that in how performance is evaluated. If we, and there's some great videos out there of monkeys, by the way, they have the same thing where if Harold and Rin are doing the same thing, but Harold gets rewarded for it and Rin doesn't, Mm -hmm. both Harold and Rin's performance actually degrades. Oh boy. Yeah, it's, um, I used to really think it was always just taboo to discuss pay with colleagues, but I I had an experience recently where workers in the same department who were doing essentially the same thing found out that one was better compensated than the other. And of course, my first thought was lower the pay of the worker who had blabbed. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't think that's um, as enlightened approach as uh, yeah. as there might be. So what should I do? What's even worse in those situations in in more demoralizing uh, to a knowledge worker environment is the companies that fire the worker that blabbed. Oh, okay. Well, that goes off the list. Yeah, and what happens is then everyone else stops trusting leadership. Mm. Well, what else are you hiding from us? And it becomes a, a death spiral yeah. um, for your culture. That is why we see more and more companies just publishing salaries or publishing, start with not publishing individual salaries, but start with publishing salary ranges. Mm-hmm. And then it's actually, I find it a lot easier to have um, fact-based conversations mm-hmm. about why Rin is above the midpoint and Harold is below the midpoint. Right. Well, you know, Rin has this extra certification or Rin has this degree that Harold doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Oh, everybody says that makes perfect sense. Sure, they right? might not like we it. We can all we can all understand that. Yeah. And Harold says, "Well, does that mean that if I go get that certification, that you'll give me a raise?" And a smart knowledge company will say, "Absolutely, Harold. Mm-hmm. Let's get that certification." 
Um, but some companies have gone as far as to publish individual salaries. And what it comes down to me when I'm talking to the CEO and I'm talking to the board, especially the compensation committee of the board is, if you really believe in your pay practices, uh -huh. then transparency should not scare you. Uh -huh. The only reason you'd be afraid to publish salaries is if on some level you suspect or you know or you believe that you have pay and equity issues. Yes. That you are in that that could get you sued. Mm -hmm. But if you really don't have any compensation issues, any pay issues, there's no reason to be afraid of everybody knowing what they're being paid. Yeah, that's well said. Um, and I guess too, in the knowledge age, and you've mentioned this a little bit earlier, you know, we still get paid based on that piece count approach. How many lines of code did you write today? Um, and that's a measure right out of the 19th century, kind of like, you know, how many acres of land did you till today? Um, it's a startling mm -hmm. similarity. What should business leaders do differently to advance overall compensation policy in the 21st century? Right. So we talked about the science has taught us that everybody should be paid uh, a fair, comfortable wage. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons we do that is then we're removing that distraction. Yeah. If a, if, if a worker, if the knowledge workers are not worrying about money, then they get to focus on the problems that you hired them to work on. And I've seen this over and over again. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing when knowledge workers aren't worrying about their jobs. One of the worst things companies can do is have continuous layoffs. Yes. Because then everybody's worrying about their job. Mm -hmm. So the part of their brain will always be worrying about their job and not worrying about the problem that you hired them to fix. So that's one of the things. When it looks, when we look at just rewards and recognition, that's where things get also very different between industrial workers and knowledge workers. Knowledge workers do best when there are team or group rewards and do worse when there are individual rewards. And the more disparity of the individual rewards, the mm -hmm. worse they perform as a, as a whole. You may find individuals who do really, really well, uh -huh. but for the most part, the, the knowledge workers underperform. Uh -huh. And so a lot of what I work with my clients on is let's figure out what those team rewards are, and they should be substantive because that's the other thing. Knowledge workers do not respond well to... You know, hey, it's Wednesday. Here's your bonus. You know, it, it has to be something that's substantive, meaningful, that ties back to those really important things of purpose mm -hmm. and mastery. Right. Right. So where we do see individual rewards, by the way, being successful mm -hmm. are people who continue their education. We see that a lot. Um, especially in our, uh, our really innovative companies. Mm -hmm. Toyota, for example, American Express, um, Google, Amazon, there's several of them that if you get your master's degree or you get your PhD, you get a bonus and sometimes a raise. Uh -huh. Often both, right? Right. Those work really well, but most of their 
rewards and recognition are based on team performance. We did this together. We had this purpose. We mastered this. And here's the reward that we got. And they're real time. Mm-hmm. So if you finished it at the end of first quarter, sometime in the next month, the reward is given. You don't wait until the end of the year. Okay. That's the worst thing to do with knowledge workers is to separate when the event happened and when the reward is issued. They need to be closely coupled. Yeah. I always say that that's where knowledge workers are like children. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If you want to continue the positive behavior, you got to put those two things really, really close together. Right. You want the least amount of time between them. Yeah, for it to really resonate and retain its meaning. That makes a lot of sense. Now, in college, they made everybody do teamwork, and it was supposed to help us all learn how to work together or work with others. And generally speaking, I'm sure there were exceptions, but there were always one or two people who did all the work, and the rest of the group benefited from those efforts while contributing very little. So fast forward to the workplace. If we're on a team together and we're all paid the same, what incentive do any of the individual members have to do more or to work harder? Right. So the dead weight conversation. So I have this everywhere. Every client I've worked with, we've had this conversation. There's a couple of things. One is, thank God, for the difference between the college brain and the adult brain. Yes. Agreed. And I mean that purely from a biological standpoint. Human beings are not adults until they're 26. That's right. That's when the frontal cortex and your and your bones, actually, because there's a lot of other stuff going on, mm-hmm. but that finish um, and achieve a, a physical and biological adulthood. Okay. And yep. so, unfortunately, when we're in college, we're not working with an adult brain, and so often don't make adult decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, what is the incentive in college? It's the grade. Right. It's not the work. Right. And what we've talked about that a lot is, in for knowledge workers at work, it's the work, it's the purpose, right? It's the mastery. Mm-hmm. That's why you show up. Yes. And so it, it, it's a very different environment in that regard, but it, it does still happen. I have worked with multiple teams where you still have someone, or usually it's one person, mm-hmm. um, underperforming. Yes. And dragging down the performance of the team. And this is why in Agile we work so hard to really um, foster self-managing, self-organizing teams. Mm-hmm. The teams know who the underperformer is. Absolutely. And they will let leadership know if leadership is willing to listen. Yes. Um, the other thing is the importance of having good Agile coaches. Mm-hmm. because the coaches will make sure that the team isn't de- devolving into a clique. Right. All strong, powerful, performing teams need to have creative tension. Okay. 
let that sink in. So (laughs) that means if everybody is getting along and everybody talks about how much they like each other, Uh and this this goes back to a lot of research done on teams, including, um, what is it? Oh, I can't remember the number. Is it five or seven dysfunctions of a team? Uh Oh, darn. I can't remember the name of that book. But, you know, you guys can Google it. Yeah. Um, It's five dysfunctions of a team. We talk about... real teams, you know, are really productive and are solving great problems together, Mm -hmm. actually don't always like each other and don't always get along. Creative attention is necessary. Um, And actually one of the worst things that happened to American business particularly, but Western business as a whole, is this whole consensus thing. Uh Everybody has to agree. Well, no, actually that's a natural and it's dysfunctional, and we got too many, you know, groupthink and yes men, and uh-huh. and what happened, right? Our innovation dropped significantly, and our competitiveness as a country dropped. Um, we need creative tension, so that's where strong leadership and good coaching comes in to make sure that the teams aren't singling someone out because there are the odd duck who's challenging the groupthink of the team. Uh-huh. If that's happening, as a manager, you need to be insistent that that team member stays on that team. Mm -hmm. And that that team learns to respect the contributions of that person. And they will find that they'll actually become a um, higher producing, more productive team. The worst thing you can do on a team is everybody, like, hugs each other every day and sings kumbaya. Oh, boy. And um, They're not going to solve any real problems. That's, um, you know, I've observed that in sports and in sports teams where the performance on the court of the field was superb and the guys on the team really didn't like each other very much. So that explains that. <laughs> because they're challenging each other. Yeah. And, and that's what a great team does mm-hmm. is they're trying to get the team, con- sometimes unconsciously, is trying to get the best performance out of every single person on the team. That requires tension that requires that people are uncomfortable that requires that people are sometimes even offended i'll just throw it out there sure. you know <laughs> you know i think of one of the teams that i that i worked with that i helped lead that completely revolutionized the financial services industry and introduced a brand new product that no one ever had there were times those guys hated each other yeah yeah. Because they were having, they were solving some really tough problems. They were challenging each other's assumptions. They were challenging each other's, um, you know, knowledge and skills. Mm-hmm. And, and they were forcing each other to do experiments, to do fact-based. Um, and that's uncomfortable. You know, especially when we really take our profession seriously. Mm-hmm. And we really want to be masters of our profession. Mm-hmm. Being challenged like that is uncomfortable. Yeah. And just to, before we move on to kind of wrap that up with our team <laughs> analogy, I'm going to bet that the people who work harder on that team will grow to resent the other members who are just coasting along behind them, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and those people, who are coasting, they do show up. 
you can see it, and mm-hmm. especially for an agile organization. We have a saying, there is no hiding in agile. Oh, that's right. Yep. Um, and we mean, the, and we mean that in this case too. If someone is a slacker, that actually becomes very apparent after only a couple of sprints. Mm-hmm. Everyone's going to see that. And we have ways to then manage that performance. Either that person needs to step up or we move them to a different role or they move to a different company. Right. So that's one of the things I try and, and, and I've proven to my clients, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if you're an agile company, that underperformer isn't going to be underperforming for a really long time. Yeah. Now, you had mentioned earlier that um, knowledge workers didn't didn't really do particularly well when they were isolated, and mm. you know, it, it kind of brings me to another belief that you know Americans are are fiercely independent. They value rugged individualism. So, help me wrap my brain around you know how does the team approach? square with the independence belief. Yeah, well, the independence belief seems to be more about politics than it is about work situations because when people, uh, Americans, whether they're going into an industrial workplace or a knowledge workplace, um, often seek environments in which they can have a sense of belonging and a community. Okay. And that's really where the teamwork comes from. Um, one is that human beings are designed to perform better in team environments when we're collaborating and we're working together to solve a common problem. Uh-huh. Because we can't know everything. So each of us brings our own perspective and our own specialty to the table to solve that problem. Okay. And the other thing is that we are, by our nature, um, social human beings, which we've all been hearing since our first biology class, right? Uh-huh. And that's why we operate and we thrive in communities. So one of the things that's been really, speaking of thriving, uh-huh. <laughs> um, in the United States and the Western uh, business community uh, that comes from Eastern business communities are things called community of practice or community of interest. Uh-huh. And there are literally people who are wanting, who are achieving mastery already in a certain profession, coming together and sharing that. And we see that all the time on like meetup groups and things like that. Uh-huh. Or in the case of communities of interest, people who want to learn more okay. about an area that they are not in, but maybe adjunct to them. Okay. Um, that is just kind of who human beings are. Um, we're really interested in other human beings. We want to learn from them. Mm-hmm. We want to work with them. We want to solve problems with them, mm-hmm. um, which is probably why we're a democracy. Yeah. <laughs> because that's how democracy works, right? Well, that's and right, there's yeah. so many democracies in the Western world and parts of the Eastern world that um, we just, that's, that's just a natural human being. Um, and we do the same thing with our families, right? We don't right. try to solve family problems as an individual. We look to the family unit and say, how are we going to resolve this? Yeah. You know? 
um, yesterday was house cleaning day at my house. So mm. it's like, how are we going to get the whole house cleaned? Well, we're going to divide and conquer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and each person volunteered for, for chores and, and we got it done quickly. Awesome. Um, and with no drama. <laughs> well, even better, the lack of drama. And um, yeah. it's, um, this is all such a revelation. Um, so let's, let's talk about rewards and incentives that are not linked to money. Mm -hmm. What are some of the best practices for the non-monetary reward? So this is really interesting too. So I just remember, I, we were talking earlier and I said how important it is to link um, you know, the success event with the reward, but I didn't tell you what the reward should be. And I'm right. pretty sure most people went monetary. Well, the truth is monetary rewards are often the least successful. Mm -hmm. Let that sink in. Um, there's tons of science. Also, this is going back into past the 1940, um, into the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. Um, that we've started seeing this behavior and we really was the, in the advent of, um, early professions and knowledge workers. So, um, lawyers, accountants, and, and doctors uh -huh. were, or the medical profession, I should say, as a whole. We started to see this, that, um, monetary rewards were not, were not really all that successful. What was more successful, um, were rewards tied to emotion. Okay. The so feeling of purpose, feeling things that rewarded autonomy, things that rewarded, uh, that, that gave more mastery. So what we saw is in these knowledge industries is when they're rewarding purpose and you got a plaque, you got your name on the wall. If you're mm -hmm. an attorney, you got your name on the, on the company masthead, right? right. If autonomy meant that you had fewer and fewer people you had to answer to to do your job well. Mm -hmm. Um, when we look at accountants, when you started as a junior accountant, it's things like everybody reviews all your work. Right? It's like 20 yeah. people in it. Seriously. And part of being rewarded and recognized for your increasing mastery of your profession is you have fewer and fewer and fewer people reviewing your work to the point that no one does. Right. Right? Um, right. So that's rewarding autonomy. Uh, or that's a reward based on autonomy. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we found is, um, especially in teamwork, is team rewards and recognition. So I have one client, fairly small company, about 50 people. Mm -hmm. They had a rockin' year, and so the CEO, she took everybody and their spouses to Hawaii for a week. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, um, and also just, for those who care about those things, they actually did true up the taxes so the employees didn't have to pay income taxes on that. Um, right? And, and you look at some companies, um, 3M American Express, others, Amazon, Google's another one, Apple's another one. They're notorious for these experiential rewards. Mm -hmm. American Express since the 1950s rewards employees with trips. That's so cool. For their friends and family, and the whole, you know, whole team will go, right? Mm -hmm. um, those, uh, that's a lot of money, but one of my clients, we just did things like um, everybody got a half day and we went bowling. Mm -hmm. Another time we went on a boat cruise. Um, other times we've uh, worked with clients and we'll go out to happy hour. Mm -hmm. um, 
these are all very experienced-based activities the entire team gets to participate in and enjoy. And the truth is, and it's, you know, happened. My clients never believe me until it happens every single time. Right. You do something like that, their performance, you get an uptick every time. Yeah. Um, cause that's what people really respond to. And one of the things I try to do is tie the reward to the purpose. So the mm-hmm. why people should work for your company, mm-hmm. your reward should reflect. Your purpose, why you exist as a company, what are your company values? Well, your reward should be consistent, consistent with that. Um, And it's true, the non-monetary rewards are often the most successful. Yeah. Um, And they're the ones that people are going to talk about. I I know uh, that one client I told you that it's been almost three years. Her employees are still talking about when they went to Hawaii. Yeah, and... um when we're off the air, I'm going to ask you to give me the name of that company so I can uh, <laughs> get in touch with them. Um, but it, it but there's a lot of companies that do stuff like that. I mean, we hear it all the time from Amazon and Google, for example, Microsoft, mm-hmm. and they do it now because they, it, you know, it's warm and fuzzy and it's the fad, right? They do it because it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that kind of brings me to uh, a question about culture and mm-hmm. the culture of of companies. Help us understand, you know, what does that mean? And how does fitting into a culture influence employers and potential employees when deciding on where to work? Right. So when we're talking about knowledge workers, uh, and we're seeing more of this, and there's a lot that's come out on um Google, probably more than anybody, about an employers taking um, a, a very decisive stance. We want to hire knowledge workers, mm-hmm. period, well, number one, right? And we want to hire the best knowledge workers we right. can. And we want to keep them. <laughs> so once right, they come, yeah. we want them to stay. And so they deliberately, you know, and, and they're um, fairly forthright, without saying what their purpose of working at Google is, why you should want to work at Google, what autonomy looks like at Google. They brag about the fact we don't tell you when and where to work. If you want to work at 2 o'clock in the morning, fine, we don't care. Uh And they give their, their employees a lot of autonomy about how they're going to work. So... If you find a low-cost tool that helps you do something better than the one that we're using, go ahead and do it, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Most companies, you have to go through procurement, you have to get all these approvals and that, right? And <laughs> Google says no. As long as you stay within these governance guidelines, go ahead. Yeah. Um, and they strongly, and they, and they, they talk about now that we want to hire the best, but we want you to keep pushing yourself. So mastery. Right. And so that's what they're looking for when they hire people. And they publish the questions they ask. Um, they want people who who are aligned to the Google sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. They want people who have a sense of autonomy, which means accountability. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. as well. I'm going to work really hard on this because I don't want to let my team down. Right. I don't want to be the one that everybody thinks of as a slacker. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's part of having an internal sense of autonomy. Um, and they look for people who are trying to work, who are pursuing mastery. I want to be really good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're also looking for people who who fit into their creative dynamic. Right. I mean, they ask some bizarre, crazy questions in their interviews. Why? Because they really consciously do not want to hire the same person over and over and over again. Yeah. They want to hire people who are going to create and just by the, by their existence be catalysts for creative tension and innovation. Um, people who don't think like everyone else and mm-hmm. who aren't going to be susceptible to groupthink. Right. And then I give them that, and that, and that means that not everybody's going to fit, and not everybody right. should fit. But I use them only as an example as what as leaders we should be thinking about when mm-hmm. we're hiring. Do we hire want to hire someone who's just like Ren? Yeah. Maybe if you're trying to create a Ren-like person on another team, mm-hmm. but do you want to hire just like Ren on the same team as Ren? Probably not if you're looking at knowledge workers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And what are you doing to make Harold want to work for you? Right. Yeah. That's absolutely. And keep working for you. And, and hang around. <laughs> absolutely right. And doing his best work, you know. Those are. Where um, the alarm goes off and Harold's like, yep, I get to go to work today. Now I have yeah. to go to work, you know. That's right. Or. Rin has an idea in the middle of the night and is like, oh, gets out of bed and, you know, gets on her laptop That's and right. does it, right? Because you've created the office of, as an employer, you've created an opportunity and the autonomy for Rin to just get up in the middle of the night if she has an idea. Yeah. She doesn't have to wait until the next morning if right. she doesn't want to. Right. Um, that's what we're talking about. Um for knowledge workers and how how different it is that how we think about it. Yeah, that's um, that's just a whole another level of of thinking, and um, we could probably you know <laughs> write a library full of books on that topic. But um, sadly, we are constrained by time, and with <laughs> the time that we have remaining, if Ren ran the world. How would compensation packages for knowledge workers be structured? Um, there would be a base salary um, with a guaranteed minimum annual raise, an opportunity for a higher raise if that makes sense economically. Mm-hmm. Um, so the economics of the company, the economics of your particular market or environment, um, et cetera, because I'm thinking of, like, right now, you know, Minneapolis is ridiculously competitive for IT mm-hmm. folks. There's more 200,000 open IT jobs. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. That's a lot. That's a city full. Exactly. I was just going to say, and uh, there are some cities in this country that don't even have that many jobs, you know, oh, and... Yeah. 
Um, and so you have to take that into consideration uh-huh. as an employer. Um, that you're going to pay a little bit more, your raise is going to be a little bit more. But uh-huh. the rewards and recognition should be very fluid, very open, uh-huh. and somewhat self-determinate. Uh-huh. You know, we didn't talk about this, but I really believe that teams should be able to pick their own reward. Um, it's more meaningful. It's more impactful. Right. right. Yeah. That way. Um, but we focus so much on bonuses. And bonuses are actually, um, do not improve performance for knowledge orders. They tend to degrade performance. And so I personally, if we're around the world, like you said, mm-hmm. would get rid of most bonus st- structures mm-hmm. as tied to performance, individual performance. Mm-hmm. Um, bonuses would only come as company performance, so everybody gets a share of the company's success. Mm-hmm. But the real rewards in, in condition and sorry, rewards and recognition would be tied to team success and performance and they would be tightly coupled in time. So a team achieves a major milestone mm-hmm. within the next week or two. Their right. recognition happens. And it would be rarely money. Okay. Well, you know, if it wasn't obvious before it, it probably should be now that business leaders really have a lot to learn about compensating employees and retaining the best ones. The, the amount of money required to replace an employee who leaves for a better paying job should help to compel that change. And there's certainly more to compensation than just writing checks. At the same time, Employees should remember that they have a duty to deliver value that exceeds the cost of their employment. Businesses are there to make money. And if they do not make money, they go away and then nobody's got a job. So for another week, thank you for listening to the only podcast of its kind anywhere. Be sure to check in at the website www.renmelberg.com. And come back next week for another edition of the Guardian podcast with Ren Melberg.